there is an especially good modern case for diversity and inclusion based on the emerging uh, paradigm or lens of science, as I said, called complexity theory. Complexity has a particular meaning. Complexity is all about whether or not the scientific method can be applied to predicting the future. In other words, society, politics, the climate, pandemics, etc. cannot be engineered in the way the experts want you to believe. If local conditions are key uh, to complexity dynamics and perspective taking, then the subsidiary inherent of federalism is the frontline approach to 21st century governance. Welcome back, my friends, to the new suffrage movement. We have a society to save, and I'm Dr. Dave Ellis, hoping to provide some ideas on how we can emphasize the principles that unite us and restore the critical center in our culture and politics. Today, I'd like to offer a key framing for how we can redirect the cascade of social change washing over us. Now, that framing is rooted in something called complexity theory, which is a truly phenomenal paradigm or uh, lens of science. It is a relatively new uh, frame of science, and it hasn't penetrated many disciplines yet. Um, so many scientists, if not most, uh, especially in the social sciences, aren't really deep into it. But it makes a terrific case for why diversity and inclusion is an important concept, but it makes the case for free speech and federalism, or subsidiarity as we talked about before, at the very same time. There are many people who are passionate about helping others, and they are unfortunately caught up in uh, this idea of wokeism or critical theory because that's the main theory of change to which they've been exposed. That ideology is currently expressed as diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's now the basis of the Gramscian alternate hegemony. The case I'm going to make is that DNI has extraordinary value, but it's the equity aspect that has to be forcefully challenged on the basis of its injustice. You can't counter an ideology that's taken root. You have to demonstrate a superior way to redress the challenges they judge to be important and then channel that passion and energy toward a more productive set of beliefs and behaviors. Now, as I said in podcast 13, we have to re-equilibrate as a society, as Talcott Parsons said. That is to get to a new equilibrium because this is now a generational struggle, struggle we're in. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, plays off the inherent decency of classical liberal ethics. It appeals to our empathy and desires for fairness. Now, modern Western culture, rooted as it is in individualism, Judeo-Christian ethics, and humanism, wants everyone to succeed regardless of their background. This is the natural allure of diversity, diversity and inclusion, DNI. But it is the equity aspect that is thoroughly corrosive to individual civil political rights and, by extension, our constitutional system. Equity is the key narrative frame that enables those four groups using Gramscian Marxist approaches, as I discussed in podcast six, to smuggle in the economic, social, cultural, and environmental or in intergenerational rights central to the collectivist group-oriented politics. Now, increasingly, you're seeing equity being used both at in the national or country-oriented uh, context, but also at the global context, global equity. This is purposeful. The intention is to degrade Western individualism, capitalism, and confidence 
by making guilt and fear the overriding emotions guiding decision making. Don't fall for it. Help is on the way. To be brief, I'm going to just summarize the main differences between equality and equity. Let's get started. Now, equality is about the legal and political condition to which each person, each individual is entitled regardless of any specific identity features. Can he or she vote? Can he or she own property? Does he or she have access to the courts and representation? Can he or she chart a path to self-improvement? Previous suffrage movements focused on these questions, and indeed, I'd say even um, previous progressive movements were focused on uh, perfecting the individual, providing a better path based on self-improvement. Now, it's an unfortunate reality that in the attempt to gain access to the mass right to vote in the 1800s, for, for example, uh, race became a key ideology, in many cases by the experts of the day. Anthropologists, for example, hate the fact that they as experts were directly part of this scientific complex during this period. Now, Western political philosophy steadily refined ideas about the political conditions and structures necessary for maximizing individual liberty and initiative, regardless of background. Now, fast forwarding uh, over a lot of detail, as security and prosperity improved by the 20th century, especially the last half of the 20th century, individual human rights solidified and became the assumed state of nature by the 21st century. In this era of super plenty in the West, we tend, for, tend to forget that 120 years ago, there really weren't any indoor toilets, no cars, few trolleys, few light bulbs, and definitely no electrical refrigeration. Starvation and survival roles in a family actually meant something real. But prosperity, enabled by capitalist innovation, eased the survival imperatives of the family as a unit, granted people more time and made the sex-based gender roles less crucial to infant survival and the propagation of the species. Now, it's easy to talk about cis-heteropatriarchal normativity in an environment of super plenty. It made very little sense 120 years ago. Equity, on the other hand, is a proactive claim on others to remedy a particular grievance. It is a political claim not a political system as such. And it depends entirely on the subjective assessment of people as to the merits of the case. In other words, equity is a momentary perception, not an ordering philosophy as is justice under the law. In other words, it's about the narrative environment that creates the perception of grievance as with cis-heteropatriarchal normativity. Now, let's bring out the obligatory dead philosopher Immanuel Kant, who explains, quote, When one appeals to equity, regarded objectively as the ground of a demand, he is by no means basing this demand solely on the ethical duties of others, their benevolence or their kindness. On the contrary, he is basing it on his right. In the case of a right of equity, however, the requisite conditions according to which the judge is able to stipulate, determine how much or what kind of remedy should be allowed for the claim in question are absent. The claim belongs solely to the court of conscience, the forum poli, whereas every question regarding the actual law of the land must be taken before a civil court, forum soli. 
close quote. Now, equality under the law, as Khan says, is based on firm codified statements, which means each individual's or group's case can be determined with respect to clear standards. The justice of the case can be more easily judged. But in terms of equity, justice can fall prey to the whims and changing views of the masses when separated from the law because there's no moral foundation moderating the passions of the day. This is precisely why James Madison argued for a republic, not a democracy, in Federalist Number 10. Now, critical theory advocates have been able to mobilize massive numbers of youth and corporate executives to believe the, the opposite, that equity claims equal social justice because they are playing to emotions of guilt, shame, and fear. And it is so tragic that advocates of anti-racism and other criti critical theory groups proactively seek to suppress free speech as, quote, violence because they seek to express the, uh, expressly limit the agency, the thoughts, imaginations, expression, and actions of others, which is the foundation of a just political order. Now, negative liberties precede positive liberties. We've talked about that before especially in a just democratic republic. And modern equity warriors seek to turn this ordering on its head. So prioritizing negative liberties over positive liberties has long been an acknowledged requirement in the West. Now, let me give you an, uh, an example. Famed political philosopher John Rawls, long a darling of traditionally progressive causes, causes writes about the rationale for this ordering in democracies. He writes, quote, the first statement of the two principles reads as follows. First, each per person is to have an equal right in the most extensive basic liberty compatible with a similar liberty to others. Right? That's the negative liberties. Second, social and economic inequalities are to be arranged so that they are both A, reasonably expected to be to everyone's advantage and be attached to positions and offices open to all. These principles are to be arranged in serial order with the first principle prior to the second. This ordering means that a departure from the institutions of equal liberty regarded by the first principle cannot be justified by or compensated for by greater social and economic advantages. Close quote. So what's he saying? In prioritizing the principles of justice, Rawls recognizes that negative liberties, the obligations we have to refrain from infringing on others, precede positive liberties, obligations to provide for others. Stated plainly, for instance, one cannot buy off through material government benefits, welfare or other things, the individual's right to free speech peaceful assembly, or the practice of religion. Now, until the past few years, this hierarchy of rights was so ingrained in American culture as to be an unquestioned assumption underpinning the left, the right, and the center. It just was American political culture. Now, even humanist or relativistic philosophers of justice, meaning non-religious ones, recognize the requirement for tolerance and guarantees of freedom of expression as first principles. Legal scholar and international jurist Hans Kelsen, who was born in the late um, 1800s, 1881, and died in 1973, writes, quote, 
The particular moral principle involved in a relativistic philosophy of justice is the principle of tolerance, and that means the sympathetic understanding of the religious or political beliefs of others without accepting them but not preventing them from being freely expressed. Only tolerance within an established legal order guaranteeing peace by prohibiting and preventing the use of force among those subjected to the order, but not prohibiting or preventing the peaceful expression of ideas. Tolerance means freedom of thought. If democracy is a just form of government, it is so because it means freedom and freedom means tolerance. If a democracy ceases to be tolerant, it ceases to be a democracy, close quote. So justice, even in this non-religious strain of philosophy, is nevertheless dependent on the process of considered debate, free expression, and fidelity to electoral outcomes, however disappointing they may be in any given year. So it is not about the outcomes at any given moment in time for any particular group per se, so long as the individuals comprising that group can make meaningful use of their own initiative to fight for their um, uh, interest down the line. Now remember, in post 10, I introduced Cyrus R.K. Patel, who directly critiques Rawls' prioritization of rights precisely because it puts negative liberties before positive liberties. This is because Rawls promotes equality over equity. That is, he prioritizes the individual over the collective. It's essential to recognize that there is a monumental inconsistency with the basic association of equity with social justice. In the effort to promote equity, collectivists suppress equality and in so doing undermine the foundations of justice in our system. There is an unmistakable retribution narrative underpinning this movement, so it needs to be called out for the injustice it seeks to impose. Indeed, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who's one of the more popular anti-racist speakers, for example, explicitly states in his book that the remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. So collectivists specifically construct a series of social inequalities rather than steadily erode the remnants of those that once existed in our culture. But this does not mean that diversity and inclusion should be tainted by the association with equity. Far from it. There is an especially good modern case for diversity and inclusion based on the emerging uh, paradigm or lens of science, as I said, called complexity theory. It demands we keep the basic ideas underpinning DNI, but the application of diversity and inclusion needs to be reclaimed from the symbolic politics application of the concept wrapped up in equity. Now, Complexity has a particular meaning. It is not equal to or synonymous with complicated or challenging things. Complexity is all about whether or not the scientific method can be applied to predicting the future. In short, there are many, many ways in which the scientific method breaks down. Complexity theory means we have to carefully think about how science relates to both the natural world but more importantly, the social world. For example, this past week at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, uh, Klaus Schwab asked, what does it need to master the future? 
With this simple question, he revealed that for all his talk of complexity, he does not understand its most basic characteristics. The future cannot be mastered and the world cannot be controlled. Now, here's why. First, the scientific method works when A, the variables, the elements that comprise something, can be identified. B, the environment in which the variables interact can be controlled down to its most minute details. And C, the act interactions of the variables can be strictly controlled and their effects measured. Now, over the centuries, scientists have gotten much, much better at controlling environments and interactions in the laboratory and more precisely measuring the results of those interactions. With good data come innovation, invention, and incredible advances in technological capacity, which is how we're communicating. Second, scientists call controllable environments, quote, closed systems, quote, close quote, because the variables can be insulated from uh, external factors that might interfere or corrupt the experiment and the measurements of the interactions. They are literally closed off from the outside. These are called ordered systems where all the variables can be reset, tested again and again, and the results can be mathematically explained and predicted. This is the world of physics, of chemistry, material sciences, mathematics, etc., which gives us this traditional lab coat interpretation of the hard sciences. That is, the sciences where prediction is viable. Third, not all environments can be controlled, nor do all experiments take place in a laboratory. That is, there are unordered or open systems where A, the variables cannot for a range of reasons be controlled. B, the environment cannot for a range of reasons be controlled. C, there are variables human beings have no idea even exist, and therefore the interactions cannot even be imagined. And D, there are insufficient funds or tools to accurately measure the variables and the interactions. This is just a reality in science. Fourth, challenges in open systems are called wicked problems because A, they defy prediction for all the reasons I just gave. B, the perceptions of, quote, solutions to the challenges are always incomplete by their nature, even when analyzed by scientists. C, systemic interactions, all the little things interacting under, underneath the, um, our awareness, systemic interactions change over time as new connections are made and old ones lost. And D, changing the perspective, lens, filter, or framing of the challenge yields different insights. Those are called wicked problems. Now, fifth, society, politics, climate, weather, public health, economics, and culture are all open systems. They contain wicked problems. They are entirely dependent on partial perceptions of just portions of the systems, and they depend on individual choices made at the local level. This is why we see so much effort to control the narrative and control um, our interactions. Beyond the measurement problems, individuals can change their minds about their values and their interests. They can develop new patterns of interaction as a result and completely rework how society functions. In other words, this is why it's so hard to control societies over time.
Um, but this also means that while we think we see stability in social interactions or understand the system, they are always, always changing at the margins. Uh, this cascade of Gramscian Marxism we're experiencing right now is an example. It started out small, little streams and weird places called universities and steadily merged together as we previously discussed into this cascade. Sixth, wicked problems are all sensitive to local conditions because each local environment has different characteristics different kinds of systemic interactions, and different kinds of economic, political, and cultural variables impacting the larger system. Each locality is radically different than the others, which makes one-size-fits-all policies increasingly problematic the more universal the policy, quote, solutions become. In short, Idaho ain't New York. Now, there's a difference here between the laws that promote interactions, the ones that set the rules of interaction, and ones designed to solve problems, okay? We've got to keep that distinction clear. Seventh, open systems, therefore, cannot be mastered, controlled, or, quote, solved. They will adapt and change as a result of any intervention people attempt, meaning new problems and challenges will arise and have to be Resolved. In other words, society, politics, the climate, pandemics, etc., cannot be engineered in the way the experts want you to believe. Engineering requires control, order, closed systems, or mathematically predictable dynamics where the variables can be known, modeled, and predicted. The COVID 19 response reflects this basic collectivist mindset of engineering society. Why? Well, let's go through it. A, lockdowns attempted to control interactions. B, individual behavior needed to be, quote, nudged toward the, quote, correct decisions by controlling the narrative. C, morality appeals focused on collective ethics over the responsibility to protect the individual's rights, such as with vaccines or masking. And D, freedoms needed to be curtailed in order to make the system less open to minimize these complexity dynamics. Freedom of speech and negative liberties constitute the first principles of justice precisely because of complexity dynamics and sensitivity to local conditions. It is impossible for any group of individuals, no matter how expert or presumably steeped in data, to address the needs of others, especially the higher the level of abstraction, the higher the level of government. Only discourse and debate can bring those interests and conditions to light. So wicked problems are both a matter of perception, what's going on in my lo local environment, and a matter of interest. How do the different ways of being uh, conflict with one another? And these simply cannot be engineered. Now, the side effects of the pandemic policy, inflation, disrupted supply chains, lost education, etc., etc., all reflect the complex reality of open systems and the absolute necessity of free speech to navigate the trade-offs inherent to them. And here then is why federalism is so important for governance and government in complexity theory. If local conditions are key uh, to complexity dynamics and perspective-taking, then the subsidiary inherent of federalism is the frontline approach to 21st century governance as the pace of complexity dynamics dramatically increases. 
Now, we talked about subsidiary subsidiarity in podcast 13. This is the idea that policies should be implemented at the most localized level possible because the local nuances can be best accounted for. Centralized political systems take longer to respond to local challenges. They rely on criteria that's too vague to address the nuances at the local level, and they rely on assumptions that simply do not apply across all environments. Subsidiarity and federalism inherently addresses these problems, and diversity and inclusion is more likely as a result due to the possibility of creating meaningful relationships and local political alignments. Now, there are clearly cases where subsidiarity seems not to have worked well over the past decades, and we see this in the continued existence of neighborhoods and towns that still seem to be structurally isolated from the larger systems of opportunity in the country. Now, it's why these conditions continue that is the issue. Collectivists want you to believe that is due to a single variable, systemic oppression, which is innate to the political system underpinned by whiteness as a political culture. The only solution then is equity as a group claim on others to compensate for damages with inclusion of the group DNI as a component of the compensation package. But ironically, it forces individuals right back into tribes and uses authoritarian features to control thinking or engineer a new sociopolitical order rooted in collectivist morality. Complexity theory, on the other hand, directly confronts this perspective and instead argues for DNI as a central feature of subsidiarity in our federal system. It requires deep exploration of local systems with free speech, discussion, debate, assembly, and advocacy being essential for addressing wicked problems. In the end, every system is comprised of all the local environments, all the local choices, good and bad, and local relationships and networks that shape individual initiative. These variables simply cannot be reduced to, quote, the system. Doing so is scientifically invalid according to systems theory and violates key aspects of the philosophy of science. But a complexity approach to DNI embraces the dignity of individual equality, recognizes the importance of difference and perspective taking, promotes free speech and assembly, and mitigates the socio-political destructiveness of tribalism and symbolic politics. A complexity theory case for DNI, free speech, and federalism does not mean everyone will agree on everything. But it does mean that we can continue to improve our country by agreeably disagreeing, yet still working together in the spirit of love, liberty, and light. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard or are interested in learning more, please subscribe, comment, and share with your friends. Have a wonderful day.